Thank you, Derek, for stepping in. Appreciate that. Sorry that Michael's sick. It's uh, kind of a cool thing as a dad to be able to share the stage with my son. That's fun. And uh, he's self-taught. He didn't get that from me, I promise you. He got that from his mom. Um, let's go to Genesis uh, 37 this morning, if you would. I want to pray with you in just a second. There's a, a point when Jesus was talking to some religious leaders, and he said to them this kind of a remarkable statement uh, taken in the context of Scripture, especially with what we're about to look at this morning. He said, my father is always working. And then he went on to say, and I too am working. And the very next thing that you read after that is they picked up stones to kill him. Remarkable statement, because what he was doing was associating himself with God the Father, saying, God's always at work. Regardless of what you think is going on from your perspective, when you can't see God at work, when you can't see God in the difficult circumstances, Jesus was reminding us that God is always at work, and he's equating himself with God by saying, and I too am always working. That's why they wanted to kill him, because he was making the claim to be God. As you look at Joseph's story this morning where we're going in Genesis 37, you're going to see situations in which you would be tempted to say, there's no way God is in that. And yet, we're told that God is always at work, working to orchestrate His plans and His purposes. Let's go to prayer just before we study this so that we understand in the frame of mind that we would invite God to shape the frame of mind that we need so that we can see Him in the difficult circumstances that we go through. Would you pray together with me about that? Father, I, I don't know, obviously, like you do intimately, you know every situation in this auditorium right now and for every person who's watching virtually. You know intimately what's going on in our lives, even better than what we know, because you have the perspective that's far beyond ours. I pray for every one of us, God, that we would have our minds shaped by you this morning to understand that you are always at work. And it's our responsibility to surrender to your work and look for where you're working. You invite us to join you in your work, and we ask that you would put us in that place where we're just surrendered to your will and willing to look for your activity. I pray especially as we look at what's going on with Joseph this morning, that we would understand this lens by which you want us to see how we relate to you and how you relate to us. I pray for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. It's really rather remarkable when you consider the type of things that shape your destiny, the things that caused you to be who you are today and how you got to be where you're at today. It's really rather remarkable when you understand that it's often hardships that made you who you are and not the soft comforts of life but rather the really trying things that you walk through seemingly almost on a weekly basis. In Genesis 37, you're gonna see that in order for God to accomplish in Joseph's life, all that he needed to do in order to make Joseph into the man that he would be one day, he first had to go through a lot of hardships. And God was gonna take him through some very deep, turbulent water. So you're about to see some bad things happen to a good man, which leads us to one of those really big questions. I told you as we looked at the story of Joseph last week when we first stepped into this, 
that you're going to come up with some pretty hard theological questions coming out of this story. The big question that troubles many people is, why do bad things happen to good people? It's one of those hard theological rocks we have to encounter, and I want to hit it straight on with you today, and I think you're going to see it coming out of this story. But just to frame it, let's go back to where we left off last week. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 3.14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And I told you last week, we can't deny it. Peter's saying, don't deny it. There's suffering involved, even if you're righteous. Even if you suffer, if you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Now, in our human nature, we'd want to recoil and say, how can that be true? How can I go through suffering if I belong to God? Well, it is true if the hard things that you're going through are actually part of a larger plan that a sovereign God is orchestrating where He's working together all the details, a God who controls all things. So if this morning you've ever found yourself on the hard side of suffering, where you've done everything right, you've done everything that you're supposed to do, yet you've been harpooned emotionally, relationally, financially, spiritually, if you found yourself in that place, you're going to be able to identify with Joseph this morning and what he's about to endure. Because for Joseph's part, he hasn't done anything wrong. It doesn't appear that he deserves any of this, which goes to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, in the vein of that question, we must also ask the follow-up question then, since we know that God is always at work and Jesus declared that He's always working around us, is Joseph a target because God is at work? not in spite of God working, but because God is working. In other words, is God shaping Joseph and accomplishing His purposes at the same time? And could that be true for the things going on in your life? In other words, are the bad things happening to you or that have happened to you or might happen to you in the future in the same way that they happened to Joseph? Are they part of a larger good that Joseph, in this case, just doesn't understand yet? Let's go to Genesis 37, and you'll see verse 12 up on the screen, and we'll start there. Then his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, and by the way, just a reminder again, Israel is both a nation and it's a person. In this case, Israel is the name of Jacob. God called him both. Israel is, is the same as Jacob. So Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he, was, and he said to him, I will go. And he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Just a little background for you, Shechem is this widely fertile plain. It's a huge valley and a lot of individuals would go there to graze their flocks. Well, Jacob's got a lot of flocks. The flocks, they're, they're grazing massive flocks because God has really blessed him. Lots of sheep, lots of goats, lots of donkeys, lots of camels. He, he owns cows, lots of livestock. Well, this particular valley's got an extraordinary abundance of water and, and lots of green vegetables for them to eat, grass. So it's 50 miles away though. And so that means a 50-mile journey for Joseph to check on them. Well, his brothers are moving at the speed of shepherds. They've, they've got these flocks that they're tending to and that going really fast. But Shechem is a very dangerous place for Joseph to head to. It's a dangerous place for his brothers to be. 
because of a previous battle that had happened there. See, Jacob's family, they have a bad reputation in Shechem because of something two brothers had previously done. Look with me on the screen at this from Genesis 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Well, he's saying, you make me stink to them because Simeon and Levi had slaughtered all of the males of that city. They baited them into a religious action, circumcision, and when they were at their weakest, Simeon and Levi killed all the men of the city. And that's why their father said, you've made me stink, you've made me odious to these people. Well, why would you return then? Well, under the laws of that day, the laws of conquest meant that that territory was theirs, and it's a fertile valley, and they want to be there to graze the sheep, so they head to Shechem. So Joseph has this four-day walk in front of him. Jacob is really anxious to learn about the welfare of his sons, and he's nervous about his livestock. He wants to know if everything's okay with them. You can't call them up, so you have to actually go there to check on it. The question arises, why isn't Joseph with them? If the ten brothers are out to pasture and he's one of the shepherds, why isn't he with them? Well, because of his promotion. He's been given this coat of many colors, he's been given the elevated position of a manager, and he's not with them. He's been, in other words, taken out of daily operations, so he has to actually go there to check on the operations. So Jacob's concerned for their safety, but he's also concerned for his livestock. So he sends him to Shechem, and we find this in verse 15. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. Just pause there for a second. It makes it sound like Joseph is lost, and he's not lost. And it makes him sound like he's an idiot, and he's not an idiot. The concept is this. Wandering in this particular language means that he's off the path. He's not in the location where they're at, and he thought they were in one place, but they're not. Keep going. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said to him, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. A really important component for you to understand at this point is that there's two major highways that intersect this region. Think of like I-75 going south down towards Florida, where it intersects with I-10 around Atlanta, and you have a major intersection where you have the exact same thing going on at Dothan. Dothan has the King's Highway going right past it, and just past Dothan is the Via Maris, and the Via Maris goes north and south, the King's Highway goes east and west, and from those two points, you could travel any place in the known world. You could go all the way to India or back to the Mediterranean Sea. You could go from Africa up to Europe, and that's where they find themselves. Dothan has recently been uncovered by archaeologists, and they verified this place called the Two Wells was actually a real place where people gathered right at this point where these two highways came together, which sets the stage for Joseph's future. Verse 18, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. One of the really nasty human tendencies that we have as part of our human nature is this ability to conspire. Uh, 
and coming up with concepts as to how we'll actually carry out evil in a premeditated way. Well, Joseph is in range, and immediately they recognize him, not because they can see his face, they can see his coat. Before they can ever see his face or his features, they recognize this coat of many colors. So these brothers don't have to be tempted to act, they just need opportunity. So they go to guns pretty quick, and they say, let's kill him, which is premeditated murder. See, if you understand the context of this story, the degree of hatred for their brother is that great, that they would go to murder immediately. And the cause of the hatred is not secret. It's actually found in his nickname. He's the dreamer because of what we learned last week. Because of his dreams, his dreams implied that he will be their ruler and they will bow down to him one day. So what they really want to do is they want to render Joseph's dreams void. And the real issue is this. God is at work in Joseph's life. And because God is at work in his life, they can see it. And you know that because of verse 20 where it says, let's see what becomes of his dreams. I told you last week in the ancient world, they understood dreams are from God. They gave great weight to these dreams. So it's ironic that their comment is, Let's just see what comes of these dreams. Ironic because little do they know that the very thing that they're trying to destroy and the scheming that they're doing with this dispensation towards having conspiracy in their veins is the very thing that's going to cause these dreams to come about. Now, I could speculate with you, like, which brother suggested murder first? Well, my speculation would be probably Levi because he's got this murderous streak to him that you saw in Shechem. I'm just speculating. I'm, I'm just wondering if it's him or maybe it's Simeon. Maybe the two of them came up with the idea. Pick it up with me again in verse 21. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands. Kind of like Moses is putting a parenthesis around this statement. He's saying that's Reuben's real idea, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So note that Reuben doesn't participate. He actually intervenes by saying, you guys don't want his blood on your hands. You don't want to do that, which is really commendable since Joseph has replaced Reuben as the firstborn. He's been given the right of the firstborn. And so Reuben, knowing that, even though he knows that, has gone out of his way to protect his little brother. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I just want to take you into an Old Testament passage since it's almost Christmas. Well, even if you don't indulge me, I'm going to take you there, okay? There, there's a reference in First Chronicles to this situation with Reuben losing his status as the firstborn, and it links to the New Testament in a Christmas verse you'll probably see on Christmas cards over the next couple weeks. Let me take you to it. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, and you might say he was in the firstborn status, but he's still the firstborn of Jacob. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. That was a very big deal, but here's the part I wanted you to see. 
Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, as you're about to see in just a moment, the brother Judah steps up and watch this link now. And from him, circle that, came the leader. Who's the leader? From him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now, link it with this Christmas passage. Coming up, you'll see in the next couple weeks on Christmas cards from Matthew 2.6, remember the angel communicating who Jesus really was? Watch this. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, Judah the man, Judah the son of Jacob, Judah the progenitor of the line of Jesus, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The angel was linking the Old Testament with the New Testament saying, this one's really coming, and he's coming through the line of Judah, and he's going to be born in the land of Judah, and he's going to be a leader, and he will rule over all the earth. That's just the geek in me loving these links of the Old Testament, New Testament things, okay? Now, let's go back into the story. Reuben here pleads for a less severe retaliation. They, they've decided to leave Joseph in a pit, and they're going to do the more civilized thing, like not kill him first. They're going to starve him to death. So he says, let's throw him into the pit. He'll just die of starvation is the thought behind the brothers, or maybe he'll die of exposure. And in that way, no single brother will be guilty of the murder. But Reuben's real intent is that he's going to rescue his brother and deliver him back to his father. So even though he's no longer in firstborn status, he still feels the weight of being the big brother. Verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Just imagine for yourself for a moment that you're Joseph, and you're walking in totally unsuspecting what's about to happen. Hey guys, how you doing? Dad sent me. How, how, how's the livestock? and they pounce on him. Scripture doesn't give us any indication that there's any friendliness whatsoever because we learned last week that they can't even say hello to the guy. It must have given them great pleasure to strip Joseph and drop him in the pit. These cisterns that this is referring to, these were unusually deep, long to reach the water because of where they're at in this area around Dothan. And they're dark, they have a very long neck with a huge opening at the bottom. Anybody dropped in there can't get out on their own. They need a rope let down to them to bring them back out. Your voice as you scream would echo, but you can't see if anybody's up there. All you can see is the shaft of light above you, and you're in the depths of the earth. Try putting yourself into the head of a 17-year-old. You've got everything before you. Life is incredibly great. And you've been put in a pit by the hands of your own family? And you're screaming for mercy? And we know that that happens because of what it says in chapter 42? Like, how terrified is Joseph in this moment? Because even beyond throwing him in the pit, before throwing him in, they strip him of his perpetual reminder of their dad's 
favoritism, this miserable robe, let's get it off him. I just want to check our own emotions in a moment like this because in reality, it is all too easy to identify in reality with the brothers and not with Joseph. I say that for this purpose. Each of us, I recognize, I know it's true in my human nature, each of us is capable of doing what the brothers did. If you think not, check yourself against Scripture. Watch with me. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, I don't mean actually throwing somebody physically into a pit. I don't mean actually physically stripping somebody of a gift that was given to them. What I mean is this. We have each in our life stripped someone of their coat, ignoring the evidence that God is at work in that fellow human's life because we become so consumed with our own agenda, we easily fall into gossiping mode, backbiting mode, isolating mode, pushing people out of our social groups, being very rude because we miss God's agenda in another person's life. We become so consumed with our agenda. Yet the amazing thing of Scripture is even though that's true of us, I know it's true of me, I know it's true of you, Even though that's true of our nature, when we're at our worst, God says, even though you're like that, I still love you and pursue you. Look with me on the screen, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, while we're still in that place of having a hard, deceptive, manipulative heart, God says, I still pursue you because of his amazing love for us. So while we're not treating others as we want to be treated, God still pursues us. That's an amazing God. That's a God worth following, isn't it? He still loves us. Verse 25, they they sat down to eat a meal. Huh. How do you do that? Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah, Judah comes on the scene now. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. This is really difficult for me to understand. Even though I know human nature, it's very difficult to understand how in the world can they sit down and eat a meal. They've just pitched their brother into a hole in the ground. And their brother is not just suffering, he's begging them to free him. I know that because of Genesis chapter 42. The brother's own admission, look with me on the screen, verse 21. We saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. See, that's how deep the hatred is. It's really ugly. They hate him that much. So it's easy for them to sell him, verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
This is a really fascinating statement here in this verse. And it may be just to nerds like me who really love the Old Testament, New Testament, and the archaeology associated with it, but you're going to see some things that are really consistent, both New Testament, Old Testament, to authenticate the Word of God. Here's how I want you to see it. There's an important turn of events that's taking place here. You got the arrival of the Ishmaelites and the Midianites on the same scene, and it really adds to the authenticity of this story. First of all, we're told in verse 25, they lifted up their eyes while they're eating this meal, and they can easily see the approach because I've already told you, there's this really wide valley plain area in Dothan. And so they can see long distance. So they see the string of camels that are coming at them. And this string of camels is part of a caravan, and it's bearing the produce of Arabia and of India. In other words, it's coming down the King's Highway from the east. And specifically, it's bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh. Well, the balm is the balm of Gilead, and that was used as a medicinal ointment that was put on individuals when they had sore joints or sicknesses or as a salve, but also we're told it's bearing myrrh. And this is a really strong, fragrant aroma spice. And they used a lot of it in Egypt because it was used for embalming bodies. And if you didn't know this, they're making lots of mummies in Egypt at this period of time. So they need lots of myrrh, and this is part of a big trucking system. So in verse 25, we're told they're coming from Gilead, they're coming down to Egypt as part of this huge trading system, and Judah comes on the scene because he begins to speak up. Judah becomes really significant as this player because as he enters the story, his negotiation techniques kicks in, and he says, rather than letting Joseph die, how about if we just fake his death and we'll sell him to the Ishmaelites? So in in verse 28, we find that they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which very much speaks to the accuracy of this text. I don't know if you know this about the Bible, it uh, it came under huge criticism in the 1800s. During the Age of Enlightenment, especially as Charles Darwin rose on the scene, there are a lot of individuals who became very critical of the Bible and the authenticity and whether or not you could trust it. And that carried over into the 1900s, especially into schools of higher learning. And individuals began questioning whether or not these things were authentic. So what I'm about to share with you is to help you to understand these things that you're reading here are very factual and they are very authentic. So help me, let me help you understand it this way. Individuals criticized the Bible in the 1800s by saying things like this. It appears that the Torah was written around the time of Daniel, meaning 600 B.C., The Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books that they were obviously crafted in a much, much later period of time. There's no way Moses could have written those things. And that became common in the 1800s and in the 1900s to make statements like that. One question I would have for those individuals is this. How could the writer at the time of Daniel, 600 B.C., possibly have known the price of a slave 1,200 years earlier? I want to show you a slave price chart on the screen, and this particular chart is very easy to read. 3,000 B.C., 2,000 B.C., 1,000 B.C. Go to 2,000 B.C. and follow the line up to where you see the red dot. Look across and you see price in shekels of silver per slave, 20. That was uncovered by archaeologists in the 1900s and then validated again much later, closer to 2000, that yeah, indeed, 
slaves really did sell for 20 pieces of silver around 2000 to 1700 BC, exactly during the time that Joseph lived. How in the world could someone living in 600 BC know that? They couldn't have long before the Age of Information, meaning Moses knew exactly what he was writing here because it really happened. So then comes this component, this decision to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. But the Midianites suddenly appear, and they're mentioned in the same passage. They sell him to the Ishmaelites, yet it's the Midianites who sell him to the Egyptians. And so you would have to ask the question, when did the Midianites take possession of him? So who actually sold Joseph to the Egyptians, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites? And does it even matter? Yep, it does. Here's why. This all goes to authenticity. This all goes to the, val the validity of Scripture. For years, critics have tried to take apart the authenticity of Scripture and, and claiming that the evidence of inauthentic material is right here because they didn't understand the relationship between the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. Ishmaelites were bankers. They're very wealthy, had lots of resources available to them, but they were horrible negotiators. Midianites didn't have so much money, but they linked up with the Ishmaelites, and the Midianites were really good negotiators. They could spy a deal and work out a deal and negotiate a deal like nobody's business. So those two groups figured out how to hang out together, and they bartered together with other groups of people. So who actually sold Joseph, the, uh, the, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites? Well, let's go to this question. There are, there's a major shipment of balm and myrrh going down to Egypt, and this caravan is delivering it down there. They're going to go down the Via Maris and the King's Highway, and they're going to take it into Egypt. Well, the Midianites are accompanying the caravan in order to strike a deal because they get a cut of every deal. So here we learn in no uncertain terms that Judah becomes this negotiator, not Reuben, and he steps up and says, Let's sell him. Let's sell him and put some coin in our pocket, and we'll negotiate with these Midianites. The Ishmaelites will pay for it, and they can haul him away. Now, he's still nefarious in his suggestion because he's still thinking, I got this obnoxious brother I want to get rid of as a slave. And all these brothers know that anyone taken into slavery into Egypt during this period of time, there's no way they will ever be seen again meaning there's no chance that what they're about to do is ever going to be uncovered, except they forget that God is in control and that God sees everything and God always works out His purposes and even the wrath of man will praise God, as we talked about last week in Psalm 76. So you've got conspiring brothers working out what they think is their plan, but God's working around them and through them. Now, there's two routes down to Egypt. At this period of time, you could go straight south down through Hebron, but there's danger in that because that's where Jacob is at. And no doubt, he would hear about his son screaming. Joseph would want to be set free, and that would reach Jacob's ears. The other route is to go directly west to the Mediterranean Sea, jump on the Via Maris, and run right down into Egypt. Here we go with verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments, 
He returned to his brothers and said, this, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Now remember, Reuben's got no part in the plan to sell Joseph. He didn't want anything to do with it, and he returns to the pit expecting to rescue his brother, and he finds he's not even there. You find where his rage is at when you see that he rends his garments, because that's what people would do when they're in distress. They would rip their garments open, shred their shirts. So he hurries back to find out what has happened, and it's very clear that his sympathies are with his brother Joseph, and the brothers know that. So when he gets back, all he can say is, the boy is not. In the Hebrew world, that that meant he's dead, he's gone. I, I don't know what to do with him. So he responds logically, where shall I go? Because he's already failed his father several times. And he's saying, I got nothing left now. I can't even go back home. The deception takes its full strength and it's completed when they send the coat. We, we find that they sent it, which means they probably sent it with some of their servants. I'm thinking they couldn't look their dad in the eye. Let him inspect it. Then they'll show up eventually with the animals, but they, they sent the coat. How deep is the hate in their heart that they would do this extraordinary damage to their father. Ten sons, and not one of them has the courage or the conviction to step up and say, "Um, wait, that's not exactly what happened. And, And Reuben's included in that group. See, we're discovering that this deep-seated anger that they have is not just toward Joseph. It's toward their dad. They've got a dad who's not in touch with his sons, and they've been hurt so badly because of his passive heart, they just check out. And they really don't seem to care because there's zero emotional attachment to the torment that they're causing their father. I know that because of the next verse. Verse 33, then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Get this, then all his sons, all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. What's more disgusting than fake compassion? Manufactured emotion. They know the real story and they're coming around their dad and comforting, air quotes. How do you bring comfort to somebody when you know what you've really done? This, this tearing of the cloth, the, the, the depth of the mourning is represented by the depth of the tear, but then there's this added dimension to it that he tied on a sackcloth. 
Uh, when we think of that, we would think of something like a burlap bag. It's very rough, coarse material, and it was, it was black in appearance. You find Job doing it in the Old Testament, putting on a sackcloth. This is something they would wrap around their waist, around their loins, and if, if the individual was mourning so deeply, they shredded their clothing completely off their body. So I'm picturing Jacob sitting with just this loincloth on, and many times if they were in deep mourning, they would sit in ashes. And that's the picture we have of him for months and months mourning for his dead son, and he's grieving so much, he says, I'm going to go down to Sheol in my death. I'll still be mourning for him. So that you understand Sheol just a little bit, I'll touch on it, especially if you're new to church. This is the place of the dead that was understood that before the resurrection of Jesus, when somebody died, the, the saints, those who followed God, would go into the good side of Sheol, but those who were wicked would go into what we think of as hell the bad side of Sheol. We're told at the resurrection of Jesus that he emptied out the good side of Sheol and took those saints with him into eternity. In the Bible, it refers to taking captivity captive. I, I won't get into it further because we'll come back to it another time, but understand that's what that's referring to. What an incredibly brutal way to treat their father. 20 years later, he's still grieving the death of Joseph. And this story comes to this crashing end here in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So the caravan reaches Egypt and they sell him. And mind you, again, this is the Middle Kingdom. If you're interested in Egyptology, from 2000 BC to about 1700 BC, the era of the Middle Kingdom. Well, during the era of the Middle Kingdom, some things that we know about slaves and how they were treated at this time is that there were house slaves, and there were field slaves, and there were construction slaves, and the worst of the worst were mine slaves. In other words, they had to go down the shaft below ground. Most of them were held as a commodity, meaning they could be bartered or sold or traded, but they could only receive freedom one way. Either the person who bought them would set them free, or Pharaoh could issue a, a proclamation of freedom and give permission for that one to be set free. So we've got this very powerful man who's in Pharaoh's court. Joseph has arrived with this caravan, and of all the people that he could have possibly been sold to, he sold to an officer in Pharaoh's court. Potiphar is not just an officer in Pharaoh's court. We're told he's part of the Egyptian military. He's actually the captain of the bodyguard, it says there, which means literally he's the chief executioner. So if we put it in modern-day language, we wouldn't say he's just a SEAL team member. He's the commander of the SEAL team, and he makes his living at figuring out how to carry out these exercises, especially on behalf of Pharaoh. He's a professional killer. So he's in charge of official executions. The important thing is not whom Joseph is connected to. The important thing is that Joseph is not connected to a powerful man in Pharaoh's court, but rather that the Lord was with Joseph. How do we know that? Well, from the book of Acts. Stephen, in his speech before the crowd that was gathered, said this in Acts 7, 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 3, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. We just said that a few minutes ago, and we've come all the way back around to this thought that it's real. Good people suffer for godly reasons. Good people go through hard times for godly reasons, and God is still with them in the midst of it. And Peter says, if you're going through that, you're blessed. And we recoil and say, how can that be true? I don't feel so blessed. Well, if it's true. It's true if the hard things are actually part of a larger plan because there's a sovereign God that you follow, and that sovereign God actually controls all things. New Hope Church, the workings of a providential sovereign God are awesome. I hope this is of great encouragement to you this morning for this reason. Your God whom you follow, that God is so great. He works out his purposes even when people are doing their worst. Daniel wrote about this. Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Look at this. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And the greatest example of that is the cross. Acts chapter 3, you remember Peter standing before the crowd saying, you meant this for evil. God meant this for good. So are the bad things happening to Joseph part of a larger good? Yes. And since that's true, if you this morning are in Joseph's shoes or you're in Joseph's shoes in the future or you're looking back on the past and saying, why did I go through that? Would it not help you in this moment right now to understand that God is actually working behind the scenes, causing things to work together for a greater good? Would it not help you to be reminded of that? Would it make it easier for you to endure the hard things if you knew that in comparison to God's greater good, what you're going through is actually light and momentary? See, God knows that you need to be reminded of that, so He caused the writers of Scripture to write that down. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for momentary light affliction. It doesn't feel so light, does it? It doesn't feel so momentary. But Paul's reminding us in the scheme of eternity for what God has in store for you. This momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those are eternal. <laughs> it's so good encouragement, right? You just know that Romans 8.28 has got to follow that, don't you? Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. The reality is for that to be true, you must be in a relationship with God. And that relationship only happens through Jesus Christ. You have to have the relationship, otherwise it's just bad things happening to you. But God can take the bad things and shape them into good things if you're called according to His purpose. So God causes all things to work together for good, but Joseph never read Romans chapter 8. And he doesn't know those things by reading it, but he knows it this way. He experienced the truth of it, and he knows the hand of God, 
And he knows the dreams God gave him, and he knows what God can and will do. So this morning, you worship the same God, the same God that Joseph worshiped, the same God who does not change, will not change, cannot change, and never ages out. And I hope you agree with us. Say amen if you do. There is no shadow of turning in our God. That statement means there's nothing that alters in Him. What He said then is just as true today. It's His nature and character. So that same God, He is so great, He works out His perfect purposes even while people are doing their worst. And He can cause all things to work together for good. And the greatest evidence of that is Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, God sent Jesus. While we were still in rebellion, Christ died for us. How great is our God. He's working around you right now in this very moment. You can't see what's going on in this room, in the spiritual realm, but He's working around you right now. He's working around your social circle. He's working around your family members. And His purposes ultimately for the whole world will be understand one day when He returns in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? Let's pray for that. Father, I pray that You would send Your people out with an encouragement, a reminder right now that You are at work even when we're going through the hardest trials. Remind us who's in control. And remind us that you're coming again one day and you will make all things new. We praise you and we look forward to that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus, in whose matchless name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I'll be down here in the front. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to introduce myself to you. And other times, have a great week if I don't meet you.